0: We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9, so if you'd like to open to that. Our, our main question in the book of Daniel this fall has been, how do we as Christians relate to our culture that is often idolatrous and hostile to, to Christianity? So how do we serve our culture well and be involved and engaged in it and yet remain faithful to Christ. So let's read this chapter and we will learn how to pray in exile, how to pray as Christians in a secular culture. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As of this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, and to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he said before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is God's word. Well, this is how I'd like to address it. I'd like to break it up into two basic parts. I'm going to look at Daniel's prayer and then God's answer to that prayer. So his prayer and then God's answer. As we look at the prayer, I'd like us to think how that affects our praying in exile. As we look at how he prayed in exile, how do we then pray as, as Christian people in a secular, idolatrous culture? That's going to be helpful for us. And also as we look through the text, as we work through it, uh, I'm gonna pause every so often and, and make a remark about the nature of our faith, the nature of Christianity. And, and so I will I will draw out some principles out of the traits of Daniel's prayer and God's answer to that prayer to help us understand better what our faith really is about. It's easy to get distracted on a bunch of other stuff. But let's focus on the essentials. And if you're not a believer, this may be a good primer for you to see what Christianity is actually about. And, of course, we will look at the last few verses and we'll talk about the numbers and all that, the 70 weeks. We'll cover that. I'd like you to take out your end times charts, if you brought them with you, and we'll try to coordinate our efforts and and figure out when all this is going to happen or if it's already happened. So, big task before us. Let's see if we can work through it together. Let's look at the prayer of Daniel first. Now, the first thing we learn about Daniel's prayer is that it is prompted and informed by the reading of the Bible. Daniel's prayer is prompted and informed by the reading of the Bible. Now, look at how our chapter starts. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Daniel is reading the Bible. He's reading specifically the book of Jeremiah, which we have in our Bible as well, and interpreting what is happening around him in light of what he's reading. Now, as best as we can tell, these are probably the two passages that he has in mind. Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12. It says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. And then Jeremiah 29.10 has another prophecy that Daniel undoubtedly paid attention to it says for thus says the Lord when 70 years are completed for Babylon I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place meaning Jerusalem you see God told his people before they exiled before Babylonians took over Jerusalem he told his people that Babylon will only rule over them for 70 years And after that, Babylon itself will be punished for their sins and their iniquities. And God's people will be able to return to Jerusalem. So Daniel is reading these passages in Jeremiah. He's realizing that it's already been almost 70 years since he himself has been in Babylon. And that the last king of Babylon had just been deposed and killed. Now a new power has come in. Darius which is probably another name for the Persian king Cyrus, as best as I can tell. It's probably the same person. Or maybe Cyrus' general in charge of the Babylon part of the empire. But a new ruler has come in, and he has took over Babylon. Now, Babylon has been punished already. And so Daniel looks, and Daniel says, I've been here almost 70 years. Babylon has been punished. What's coming up next, according to God's prophecy? God's people are supposed to return to Jerusalem. And so he prays to God and he pleads with God to fulfill his promise and return his people back home. You see, Daniel's understanding of history, his understanding of reality around him, how he interpreted what was happening around him, is informed by the Bible. He knows what God says and he expects God to fulfill his promises to his people. He knows that the empire's Come and go, but God's word endures forever. Daniel's prayer is not only prompted by this prophecy, but it, it itself is full of allusions and, and, and references to other passages of Scripture. The way Daniel prays is, is he prays with the language, the terminology, the concepts, and the comparisons of Scripture itself. The way he speaks to God is in, in the very same way that God speaks to us. He's using the same language, the same ideas. He's speaking back to God his own word. There was this great evangelist, a preacher who was very successful in ministry during the early to mid-18th century, the time of the Great Awakening in England and in the American colonies. His name was George Whitfield. And Whitfield was was the kind of preacher that uh, p- women would swoon, w- women would fake when he just starts speaking. The amazing natural gift, talent. Of, of uh, he could have been a theater performer, he could have been an actor, and he used that power to bring people to Christ. And God God used him in an amazing way. Many many people got converted by listening to his preaching. And so it's easy to look back and say, well, of course, his power was in his natural ability to perform and to be able to influence people with his oratory. And yet people who knew him uh, would say that his success in ministry could be traced back to two particular practices in his life. One was his unusual prayerfulness. He just prayed a lot. And second trait was his habit of reading the Bible on his knees. He read the Bible while kneeling and presumably praying. George Mueller, the famous uh, orphan lover and founder of many orphanages in Bristol in England, this is 100 years later, past, past Whitfield, so 1800s, he read that about Whitfield and took that same habit for his own life. And he too, he read the Bible on his knees. He, he prayed as he read. And so maybe that's a good, a good habit for us to take, for some of us to take. As you read your Bible, read it on your knees. Why? Well, it's, it's a way to remind us that Bible and prayer are connected. They're, they're not two different things. They're, they're the same. They're supposed to come together. As we read, we should pray. And as we pray, we should remember and read his word. Let me give you another um, or a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, He encourages us to do just that, to connect Bible and prayer. He says, oh, that you studied your Bibles more. Oh, that we all did. How we could plead the promises. How often we should prevail with God when we could hold him to his word and say, fulfill this word unto thy servant, whereon thou hast caused me to hope. Oh, it is grand, praying when your mouth is full of God's word. For there is no word that can prevail with him like his own. Let this be an encouragement to you, to pray based on the Bible, to pray in the language of the Bible, to pray based on the promises that God himself made in his word. As God's people live in an exile, we must learn to pray with our Bibles open. Our understanding of reality and our expectations of the future rooted in God's own words and promises. Friends, it is so easy for us to, to buy into the view of reality that the empire sets before us, that our secular culture tells us about. We can't succumb to that. We can't compromise on that because it will affect everything else in your life. You need to constantly go back to scripture and say, God, what is real? What are you doing? How do I interpret these events in my life? How do I interpret illness? How do I interpret disability? How do I interpret financial struggles? How do I interpret political events around us? Events of history? How do I see that in the right light? Help me. Because everybody else will have all sorts of opinions on those things. But how do we know what's true? We go to scripture. We go to his own word. And we trust that what God says in his own word to his own people is true and could be trusted. Now, what does this kind of prayer tell us about the nature of Daniel's religion, and the nature of Christianity? It is a religion of the book. Christianity is a religion of the book. Now, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're a new believer or not a believer at all, you're trying to figure out what it is, know that it is a religion of the Bible. Our perceptions of God, of ourselves, of our world, are all based on the revelation from God himself contained in this book. That's why we read it as Christians. That's why we we pray it. That's why we sing it. That's why we preach it. We know that this is where God speaks. This is where truth comes from. And so we're going to be committed to the book. We are the people of the book. The second thing we learn about Daniel's prayer is that it is offered on behalf of and as part of God's covenant community. In other words, Daniel isn't coming to God by himself as an individual only, but he's coming in context of God's people. And so he relies on God's history with his people. He relies on God's promises to his people. He confesses sin on behalf of the people he is very much part of God's community. Seven times in this chapter, in this prayer, God is called by his covenant name, Yahweh. Yahweh is a name that God gave to his people. He gave it to Moses to identify himself, to separate himself from all other ideas of of God. And this name is a covenant name, a name by which his people know him. Now in your Bibles... You can tell, if you use an ESV, which is the translation I'm using right now, or NIV, or probably most other translations, would, would, would hint at it, will we'll show you, will tip their hand by capitalizing the word Lord. When Lord is capitalized in your Bibles, when it's not just lowercase Lord, but uppercase Lord, all four letters are uppercase, that means Yahweh in Hebrew. That's the covenant name of God. And that's important to notice, because that name comes up at important times. When people are claiming God's covenant promises, God is a God who has committed Himself to His people. He made and fulfilled promises to them. He's a God who has entered into relationship with His people, starting with Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob. He brought the people out of Egypt and provided for them in the desert. He gave them the law through Moses, telling them how they should live in the land of promise. He led them into the land and defeated all their enemies. He put David as king over them. Then David's son Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem where God met with his people through the priests and the sacrifices. But people disobeyed God, neglected his law, followed after other gods. They were unfaithful to the Lord. And that's where Daniel is, is at right now. He knows that because of the people's unfaithfulness, they were removed from the land, The temple was destroyed, the city is now gone, and they're in exile. But Daniel knows, and because he has all this history in the back of his mind, because he's praying as part of the covenant community, he knows that those promises will still be fulfilled because God remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. Yes, God will discipline us, and he disciplined his people in Jerusalem, but then he will restore them. And Daniel trusts God to fulfill his covenant promises. And so he looks to God and he says, to you belong mercy. And and you are righteous to punish us, but you're also merciful. And you will restore us to the land just like you promised to us. You see, Daniel understands that he's not just one person coming to God, but there is a history of God's people. And he is part of it. And He's expecting God to fulfill his promises. Daniel is praying as a member of God's community. In fact, he's confessing all these sins, and I'm sure most of them he had personally no part in. He was not an idolater himself. He obeyed God's laws, and yet he prays on behalf of the people. And he prays as if he was part of all those sins. This is a very corporate, communal prayer. Daniel does not see himself as an isolated believer. He's part of this community through the ages and through the cultures with all its faults and its history and its promises. Now, how many believers today live in an exile in the secular culture, attempt to do so in isolation from other believers? One of the biggest challenges in Christian ministry today, and most pastors would would complain to you about it, as, as I will right now, is to convince this new generation of consumers of the importance of genuine community. It's one of the hardest tasks we have as ministers is to, to prove to the people now that community matters, that you can't just be on your own, that you can't just have your own private spirituality and that's enough, and to move them into deep, authentic, genuine relationships with others. It's very hard because the empire has taught us that we could be on our own, we can pursue our own dreams, we need not care for anyone else, We can do what our heart leads us to do. And there are religions that go very well with our culture. There are religions that that you can fulfill all the obligations by yourself privately. But not so with Christianity. Christianity is a religion of the church. Christianity is a religion of the people. It's a religion of the community. We're meant to to live and experience God through Christ in our community with other believers. Daniel knows that. He prays as if he's part of this community. And he is. All the promises belong to him and to the community of others. All the faults the community have incurred are also his. He comes to God corporately, communally, on behalf and as part of the people. When Jesus taught us to pray... He told us to start our prayers with our Father. Right? Not my Father, not dear Lord as we teach our children, but our Father. Why? Every time you pray, you should remember that you're coming to God as part of the family. There's other brothers, there's other sisters with you. You're not just this spoiled only child that's trying to grab whatever you can from your Father. No, you're coming on behalf of and part, as part of a family. God is your father, but God is also a father of many others. You're part of it. So you never come, or never should come, as an isolated believer. Christianity is meant to be practiced in community with others. We're to love God, but we're also to love our neighbor. Those are connected. We experience Christ with and through others. Our mission is to bring others into our community so they too can experience Christ. Community is essential. Now, last week we had a new members class um, after church, and and there's a a great crop of new members coming into our community. Tremendously encouraging to me. And and what was really encouraging to me is seeing that uh, probably more than half of the people that will end up becoming members in a few weeks have not actually been approached by me personally. I didn't come to them and say, would you consider becoming a member? They came to me, and they said, well, I heard about this membership. I had sent out an email. We've announced it. And said, I think I'm interested. I'd like to come to a class. Exceeded my expectations. I didn't expect that many people to come to a class. Didn't have enough copies, in fact. That shows you how small my faith is. But it was encouraging to see that people wanted to be part of this community with all our faults, yes, with all the promises that God has made to us. People are entering this church and they're saying, I want to make my home here. I want to know these people. I want to share my sorrows and my joys with them. Now membership, church membership, and let me just say on the outset, it's awkward at times. It's weird, right? I mean, just put it all on the table, right? You go through a class. You sign stuff. You do all this. You take a test, which is not technically a test but an assessment. You do all that, and and, and and there's an awkwardness to it. And many of us are not used to those kind of formal things in community. But remember what the point is behind it. The point is to lead you into a family. This is our way to bring you in, to give you the privileges and the responsibilities of belonging to this household. That's why we do membership. So then we know who's part of the family so we can care for them, other people in the family. That's why. And as awkward as it is, the point is for us to be with you together in the same family. Membership for many people is a point when they stop being consumers and they become family members. Many people start coming to church as a consumer because they think they can get something from it, and you can and you should get stuff from church. But it should also transfer eventually into you becoming part of the family where you start serving others where you find your place and you say, these are my people. They need me here, and I will help them there. I will also need them, and I will require them to help me. And you start functioning in that kind of way. Now, that is Christianity. That is an essential part of the Christian faith. Some people listen to sermons online, and they go to virtual churches. That's not Christianity. It's a weird, imperial thing that's crept into our faith. Our faith is, is relational, it is about the community, and it's about the church. Now the third thing we learn about Daniel's prayer is that it happens in the context of a personal relationship with God. Now we, I just talked to you about the corporate, the communal element of the faith, but there's also a personal element. As much as Daniel comes as part of the community, he does come as an individual. Not as an isolated individual, but as an individual nonetheless. He prays to God as if he really knows God. As if there is a relationship with God. There's a dialogue, there's a conversation that's happening between Daniel and God. And it's real. Daniel doesn't just know about God from the Bible. Doesn't just know about God from the history of his people. He knows about God personally from his own experience. And so he prays to the Lord, his God. Verse 4. I want you to see how personal, how relational this prayer is. Notice the emotion that comes toward the end of this prayer. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Daniel is, is very much emotionally engaged. This is not a cold prayer, this is not a formal prayer. There's a, there's a personal stake here. Daniel knows who he's talking to, and God knows him. And then remember when the angel Gabriel comes and he brings him this additional word, additional understanding, he also says, I'm going to tell you that from God because you are greatly loved. Man, what an encouraging passage in Scripture that God sends his angel to Daniel, to affirm him in his relationship with God and to tell him that he is greatly loved by God. Do you need to hear this this morning, maybe? That God loves you? That God knows exactly who you are and he loves you? That you are greatly loved by God himself? That it's personal, it's relational. God is committed to you. That God gets emotional about you. And what a wonderful trait of our religion. Christianity is a religion of the heart. It's a religion of the heart. It's personal, and it's relational, and it's experiential, and it's mystical. All of that is our faith. And Daniel is talking to God directly, experiencing God in prayer directly. Now, those are the things that we learn from Daniel's prayer that Daniel prays on behalf of his people, that he prays prompted by Scripture, and that his heart is engaged in this prayer. This is how we are to pray in exile. We, too, are to look to Scripture for truth. We, too, are to look at ourselves in the context of community. And we, too, are come to God with our hearts open, being affected by Him, being relationally and emotionally engaged with Him. Now, what does God say to Daniel? How does he answer? Let's look at the answer to prayer. Remember what Daniel is actually asking for. Daniel is asking that, based on the prophecy to Jeremiah, God's people now be returned to Jerusalem. He's asking for a restoration of the city, restoration of the temple, restoration of the people. He wants things to be how they used to be before the exiled. This is what God promised, and this is what God would fulfill. And this is what Daniel is asking for. But God responds by giving Daniel a much bigger vision. A much bigger vision of human sin and God's salvation. Daniel is praying in local terms, in ethnic terms, in temporal terms. And God says, what I'm going to give you is much bigger than that. He says, you're looking for this temporal salvation. I'm going to give you an eternal salvation. Daniel is praying about the the exile from Jerusalem to be ended. And God says, I'm going to end the exile from the Garden of Eden. You're talking about salvation of, of the Jews. I'm talking about salvation of humanity. God raises the bar. And he says, your prayers are too small. You're asking for these little things. And I'm going to give you so much more than you have been praying about. Daniel longs for sacrifices to be brought again in the temple. And God says, Oh no, I'm going to give you better than this. I'm going to give you one sacrifice that will take care of all the sins of the people forever. Daniel looks at Cyrus, this king of Persia, who according to the prophecies, was to bring people back to Jerusalem. As he did, in fact, a year later from this this prayer. And he's looking at this king and he says, this king is going to bring the Jews back home. And God says, oh no, there'll be another king. A king who will bring all of his children home into their eternal kingdom of God. One commentator, a Jewish believer, who felt these things intensely, says, everything promised, prophesied, or ever to be hoped for Israel is thus summed up in what these 77s are to bring. So what God says, he says, you're looking for this small answer, I'm going to give you a big answer. You're looking for something temporal, I'm going to give you something ultimate. Now keep that in mind. That is the point of this prophecy. and We can't understand the numbers unless we get the big picture first. So what is God's ultimate goal? What is he actually promising to do for Daniel and his people? to finish the transgression, and to put an end to sin. What does that mean? Not just the sins of the people that caused the exile, but all sin, all transgression. God says, to atone for iniquity. Here's a hint at the ultimate sacrifice for all sins. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Not just the temporal Righteousness of the Jews returning from Babylon and having learned their lesson. No, no. Eternal, everlasting righteousness. Something that will never end. God promises to seal both vision and prophet. What does that mean? To seal means to authenticate, to validate, to fulfill all the prophecies, all the visions that were given to God's people. God is going to make good on all His promises. And then finally, there's a promise to anoint a most holy place. Now in most of your Bibles, there will be a footnote that will tell you that place, the word place is inserted there to help us understand what it means. It's not in the original uh, text. In the original text, it's ambiguous. It's left as the anointed one. It could be a person, it could be a place. I think it's intentional that the ambiguity is left here. There will be something or someone that will serve as a go-between, as a mediator between Israel or God's people and God himself. The anointed people or places were places and people of mediation. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. The temple was an anointed place because that's where God met with his people. That's how God ruled his people, through the priests and through the kings. And now something else will come or someone else will come who will be an eternal mediator, who will be an eternal place of meeting between God and his people. Now listen to how another commentator interprets this chapter and challenges us. He says, Daniel 9 challenges us to get on our knees before the Lord and plead with him to bring in the promised, to bring in the promised new world where sin and rebellion are gone and eternal righteousness is here. Our prayers are far too small. The point of this chapter, and I want you to get it before you get confused with all the numbers, okay? The point of this chapter is that God gives us something much more than what we asked for. Daniel is praying for this small deliverance, and God says, I'm going to give you this great deliverance. Daniel's praying for something temporal, and God is going to give him something eternal. Daniel's praying for something local, and God says, I'm going to give you something ultimate. That's the point of this prophecy. And so what do we learn about our faith from this point? We learn that our faith, that Christianity, is a religion of wonder. is a religion of the gospel. Gospel, good news, always better news than we expected. Our faith is always surprising. Our faith always exceeds our expectations because God is a God of grace. Because God always gives us more than we ask. That's how he is. He always delights to bless his children. And though Daniel prayed for something little, which, by the way, he received, God gave him that, God also promised something much bigger, much greater. Remember that passage that that Dave read for call to worship, Ephesians 3, verse 20. Our God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. See, Daniel thought, and he asked, and God did far more abundantly than what he actually asked for. That's our experience. Christianity is like that. It's a religion of surprise and wonder and the gospel. His answer is always better than our original question. Our expectations are regularly exceeded with God because our God is a God of grace. Now, I have a few minutes left. Let's get into the numbers of this. I'm going to try to explain the best I can what this means. There's a lot of controversy over this, these last few verses here, the 77s. What does that mean? Well, literally, it says 70 weeks. Most scholars, there's very little disagreement on this point, believe that this means 70 year, 70 times of seven years. So the week is a seven-year period and not a seven-day period. So it's a period of 70 times 7 years, or 490 years if you put it together. And during that period, this ultimate redemption, this ultimate righteousness, this ultimate answer to the human sin will come. Remember, that's the big point. That's what God is saying. Now, how is it going to happen? Why sevens? Why is God choosing the number seven to explain to Daniel how long it's going to take? Well, this is the answer that I think is is biblical. In the Jewish faith, time was measured by the intervals of seven. There were years, uh, there were seven years, and the seventh year was always the sabbatical year, the year of Sabbath, when you were supposed to get rest. The land was supposed to get rest from crops. Uh, Slaves were often released. Debts were forgiven. Now, every 50 years, there was this great sabbatical year. So you had every seven years, you had a year of Sabbath where there will be blessings to the people. But then every 49 years, so the 50th year, was the year of Jubilee. You read that in the Old Testament. The year of Jubilee, meaning that this is a super Sabbath. This is this, this, this great Sabbath that comes. And it was a whole year of rest. It was, a, it, was, it was the time when all the slaves were supposed to be released. All the debts were forgiven all the land was returned back to its original owner. So if you sold your land during the 50 years, in the year 50, you would get your land back because God wanted each family to have the same land throughout the centuries. So that was this year of Jubilee. Now, what I think God is doing here is he's, he's saying, now you're not just going to have a Sabbath. You're not, gonna, you're not just going to have a sabbatical year. You're not just going to have a regular year of Jubilee. You're going to have a super year of Jubilee. It's going to be 70 times 7. It's going to surpass all your expectations. Similar things are going to happen that happen on the Sabbath, on the sabbatical year, and on the year of Jubilee. But now it's going to happen ultimately and completely. And all those promises will be fulfilled. So I do think that these numbers are primarily symbolic. I do think that these numbers are symbolic in the sense that they point to the Sabbath, to the blessings of God coming, and the eventual great Sabbath coming sometime in the future, bringing salvation and blessings to the people of God. Now, let me me ask and answer uh, the next question. Could this also be literal? Could these numbers, aside from being symbolic, be also literal? Could it be that it was exactly 490 years from a certain point that these blessings were fulfilled, that these promises were fulfilled? Let me leave you with a maybe. Maybe. I think it could be. There are people who have charts, and maybe some of you have brought them as I've asked you in the email. There are people who have charts that clarify the dates and put it all together in such a way that to lead all of of these promises to their fulfillment. Now, let me reveal my skepticism to that, okay? Now, I think it's possible, and I would not be surprised if when we get to heaven and ask Jesus what he meant by these numbers, he's going to say, of course it was literal, it would be fine with me. But, in all the different versions of explaining these numbers, I always feel like you have to cut corners. I always feel like it's fuzzy math. It doesn't exactly add up, so you have to always just... There's a caveat. There's something else that you have to understand. It's never really clear. So, that's my caution to you. If you're able to work it out to your satisfaction to keep this literal, more power to you. And tell me, so I, so I know how to do that as well. But I think the main point of this passage is that it is symbolic. It is figurative. That God is pointing to something that is coming at the end of the 70 times 7 that will bring this ultimate Redemption. Well, what is it? Are we still waiting for that, or has it already come? It's already come. It's Jesus. The fulfillment of these prophecies is Jesus. Let me show you from the text. I want to explain everything in these verses, and I'm happy to talk to you afterwards if you have a particular question. But let me give you the big picture here of what Jesus was going to do and what he did when he came. Now, The prophecy of 70 years was fulfilled. Cyrus did decree within months of this prayer that the Jews could go back and rebuild the temple. That happened on schedule, the way Daniel asked. Everything happened fine there. But then what happened next? Jerusalem was rebuilt. There was a time of trouble. And then an anointed one came. A prince came. Who is this prince? Jesus. The anointed one, the Messiah He came, and he came to bring this ultimate deliverance, the ultimate redemption to his people. But as he came, he was also cut off, and he had nothing. So look at your text. I'm picking up on on this text. He came to provide deliverance, but then he was cut off. He was killed. He died. He had nothing. Everything was taken away from him. Jesus, who was supposed to bring this deliverance, came to die. Why? Why? Because it's through his death that all these promises are actually fulfilled. Now, the temple was destroyed after Jesus. A.D. 70, the the Roman general Titus destroyed the temple and destroyed the city again. I think that is a fulfillment of this prophecy. But it only happened after the temple became obsolete. It was no longer needed. Why? The one big sacrifice was already brought on the cross. No other sacrifices were required anymore. So the temple is gone. The city is gone. Because now we have Christ. And in Christ all these promises of ultimate redemption and ultimate blessings are fulfilled. Christianity is a religion of the cross. For us to get Christianity, we have to get to the cross. All these promises are fulfilled on the cross of Jesus. It is there that the transgression was finished. And God put an end to sin because Jesus died for our sins. Iniquity was atoned for. His sacrifice was big enough to cover all sin. It was the one and great sacrifice of Jesus and no other sacrifice is necessary. And everlasting righteousness was brought because in Jesus, you are totally accepted with God. Get this. If you believe in Jesus, you are totally accepted. Accepted with God. You have an everlasting righteousness. You can't change that even by your sin. You are totally forever accepted with God through Christ. All the promises, all the visions and prophecies found their yes in Jesus because all of Scripture leads to Jesus and his cross. And Jesus became that anointed one, the perfect mediator between God and his people. However, you reconcile the numbers, whether you take it literally or or just figuratively, the point of this passage is that this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. And what Daniel could not even dream of was fulfilled in Jesus. To understand this prophecy means to embrace by faith the crucified Jesus. So, if you're wrestling with this and you're saying, Why is this in the Bible? I don't understand. It's too confusing. The reason it's in the Bible is to lead you to Jesus. Is to point that God answers this prayer in a much bigger way by giving ultimate redemption and restoration through Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the eternal Sabbath, giving you rest and peace forever. So that super Sabbath, that super year of, jub- year of jub- Jubilee that, that uh, God is talking through Gabriel to Daniel about What is this? It's Jesus. Because in him we find rest. Because in him we find forgiveness. Our deaths are released. Our sins are forgiven. Our slavery to sin is ended. The blessings are returned back to us. The relationship of, with God is settled and secure in Jesus. Do you know him? Has that year of Jubilee been ushered into your life? where you can say the prophecies of Daniel have been fulfilled for me. That on the cross of Jesus, I now have entered into the eternal Sabbath. And yes, there will be more battles. Yes, there will be an antichrist that will try to, try, to, try to usurp the kingdom of God once more. This will happen still. But the greatest victory, the decisive victory, was won on the cross. Are you living in that super year of Jubilee. We have this religion, religion of the book, religion of the church, religion of the heart, and religion of the gospel, and religion of the cross, because of Jesus, because it is ultimately religion of the Christ.